Let's uh, focus now on our text this morning. Jeremiah 31, verses 27 through 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And it will come about that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disasters, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they will not say again, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities and their sins I will remember no more. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a great and glorious and merciful God. Thank you for your person. Thank you for not leaving us in our sinful state, but that you brought about a new covenant that we can know you, that you know us, and that you will give us a heart that beats, that is alive, that is from you. We praise you, Lord, that you've taken our heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. We pray in your name for your glory and ask these things that you would work in us, Lord, we pray. Amen. Good morning. I'm delighted to be back uh, in this marvelous book together with you, and I'm especially delighted to be in this particular passage. This is the new covenant in the Old Testament. Uh, the Bob's marvelous message last time about the critical importance of reading and knowing the Old Testament and of the unity of Scripture was a, was a great setup for, <laughs> for this morning. I want to start uh, this morning with a question. What changed about you when you were redeemed by the blood of Christ? Do you think that's a question that God would would want you to know the answer to? Would you expect to find the answer to that question in the Old Testament or in the New Testament? Yeah, the answer is both. Even though the passage uh, that we're considering this morning was written roughly 600 years before Jesus shed His blood, to purchase sinners like you and me for himself, this passage is about the miraculous change that God brings brings about when he draws a man 
a woman or a child into covenant relationship with himself under the new covenant. Some of you may think that the new covenant is exclusively a New Testament reality, that that saints in the Old Testament would, would know very little about it. But this passage and others like it tell us that the New Covenant is as central to the Old Testament as it is to the New Testament. In the first chapter of the book of Jeremiah, God presented Jeremiah with a commission, a job description, if you will. And in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, Jeremiah said, Then the Lord stretched out His hand and He touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, and to overthrow, and to build, and to plant. The first 29 chapters of this book that we've already worked our way through focus overwhelmingly on the judgment part of that commission that God gave to Jeremiah to proclaim God's intention to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, and to overthrow. And as we proceed through the book, we'll come back to more passages regarding judgment, especially the judgment of all the nations around Israel. But here in in this section of the book, in chapters 30 to 33, Jeremiah finally gets to focus on the other half of his commission, the half that actually makes his sleep pleasant. And that is his calling to proclaim God's intention to build and to plant. I pointed out earlier that chapters 30 through 33 have been called Jeremiah's book of consolation, his book of hope. And our passage this morning is the very heart of Jeremiah's book of hope. Here in chapter 31, God unveils a new covenant that He's making with Israel and Judah. A covenant that will extend to all people from all the nations of the earth. A covenant of redemption and restoration instead of judgment. Chapter 31, verses 27 and 28 draw our attention for a moment back to that commission that we just saw in chapter 1. And you'll see that the verbs that are used are they sound like the same list. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast, and it will come about that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. The next two verses, verses 29 and 30, might seem a little out of place at first glance, but of course they're right where they should be. Having just declared His gracious intent to build and to plant, God then says, in those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Now, some commentators have said that this, that those verses mark sort of a transition in God's approach to Israel and Judah and the nations where He's moving from a national focus to an individual focus. But I don't think that's quite what's going on because God continues to deal with Israel and Judah and the nations both nationally and individually after this. 
I believe the simple point of verses 29 and 30, the reason that they're here in this passage about redemption, is to dispense with any notion that the judgments that God was presently dispensing upon Israel and Judah could be blamed on the sins of their forefathers. He's saying to them, in effect, it's not what your fathers did that matters. It's what you do. It's your sin that I must deal with. And the rest of the passage is about God doing exactly that. In verses 31 and 32, God says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. A new covenant. Not like the covenant which I made with their with their their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. The emphatic point of those two verses is that the new covenant is not like the old covenant. God had kept every part of His covenant obligations under the law of Moses. Israel had kept none of theirs. God had taken His people out of slavery in Egypt. He had led them up out of that place. He had been a faithful husband to them even though they first refused to go into the land that He promised to them because they were scared of the giants, God took care of them in the wilderness for 40 years. He fed them manna from heaven. He gave them a river of water in the middle of the desert from a rock. He saw to it that the sandals on their feet didn't wear out for 40 years. How would you like to get a pair of 40-year sandals? And He had graciously given them His law, which revealed His character and His ways. A revelation that His people would need to have in order to know God and to walk in His ways. But the law written on tablets of stone did not succeed in making either of those things true of Israel and Judah. They did not come to know Him in truth, and they did not come to walk in His ways. And this failure was not something new or limited to any particular generation of Israelites. In the next chapter, chapter 32, verse 20, God will say, indeed, the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah have been doing only evil in My sight from their youth. There are statements like that all over the Old Testament. The law did not make God's people know God and it did not make them walk in His ways. And that's because it was not intended to do so. Next week, my intention at this point is to spend some time focusing on what it means that the Old Testament law was not intended to make men right in the sight of God. We'll touch on that a little bit this time, but I want to spend some more time on it next time. Here in Jeremiah 31, God says that the new covenant is not like the covenant that Israel and Judah broke. That's because the new covenant is unbreakable. My title for this entire series on Jeremiah is A Covenant Broken, A Covenant Unbreakable. And the unbreakable covenant is this one. What would make the new covenant unbreakable, and this is important, 
what would make the new covenant unbreakable would absolutely not be a new resolve in the hearts of the continually wayward Israelites and Judahites to finally do what God required. What would make the new covenant unbreakable would be a God-caused transformation within his people by which God would make them know him and walk in his ways. The new covenant comes with a heart transplant. And both the surgeon and the donor is God. It's a unilateral covenant. And in a unilateral covenant, one of the two parties to the covenant binds himself to fulfill all of the covenant obligations. The covenant with Moses was bilateral. God bound himself to certain obligations and he required certain things of Israel in order for the covenant to be fulfilled. But what we find here is a unilateral covenant. Just as with each of the other unilateral covenants in the Old Testament, namely the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants, God's revelation of this new covenant is crammed with I wills. God says, I will write my law on the hearts of both Israel and Judah. I will be their God and they will be my people. And he says, They will all know me, but what he's actually getting at is he's saying, I will make all of them know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. They won't have to ask each other, how do I know God? And then he says, for I will forgive their sin and I will never again call it to mind. That's what it means when God says that he'll forget something. It means he won't ever call it to mind. Without the last part of that marvelous promise, none of the rest of it could ever be true. It would not be sufficient for God to only give His people new hearts that delight in loving Him and walking in His ways. That would not resolve the debt that every man owes to God because of our sin. Until God completely fixes both the power of sin to enslave and control us and the penalty of sin that makes us utterly unfit for eternal relationship with Him, there can be no reconciliation of men to God. There can be no relationship of communion between men and God. There can be no real knowledge of God on the part of men until sin is addressed. But the new covenant accomplishes every bit of that and more. Another powerful passage in the Old Testament regarding the New Covenant is in Ezekiel 36. In that passage, God tells us how He will write His law on the hearts of His people. How? And how He will cause them to know Him. And the way that He'll accomplish that heart transformation is with a heart transplant. (laughs) In Ezekiel 36, God It's an amazing passage because God starts by harshly rebuking Israel and Judah for profaning His name in the nations to which He had sent them in exile. Israel had been carried away to captivity in Assyria. Judah had been carried away and was going to be carried away into captivity in Babylon. And Ezekiel is addressing both of those captivities in effect. And he says, God says to them, 
When you were in those other nations, you had a marvelous opportunity to rightly represent me. You had an opportunity, Israel and Judah, to be used by me to draw pagan people into the knowledge of the one true God. But what did you do instead? You profaned my name in those places. You worshiped their gods instead of me. And so God says to them in Ezekiel 36.22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but it's for My holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of My great name, which has been profaned among those nations which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Now, I've asked this question before, but if you were an Israelite and you heard those words, what would you think was about to happen? Very harsh judgment, right? You'd think the, the hammer's about to fall. What makes that passage so, so phenomenal, so miraculous, is how God is going to vindicate His name that His people profaned. Listen, here's how I'll vindicate my name. God says, I will take you from the nations. I will gather you from all the lands. I will bring you into your own land. And then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will put... I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put My Spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in My statutes and you will be careful. You will, literally, you will watch, you will keep watch to observe My ordinances and you will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so you will be My people and I will be your God. That's how God deals with the fact that His people profaned His name. Is that not marvelous? That's how the law of God would come to be written on the hearts of His people. He would give them a new heart and put a new spirit within them. His spirit and the indwelling of His spirit would cause them to walk in His law. Furthermore, He would bring them back to the land that He gave to their forefathers and make them dwell in it securely. In that land, He will be their God and they will be His people. We've already talked about the fact that the, the land in which God will ultimately dwell together with His people forever is the new Jerusalem. And it's coming, beloved. The new covenant is God's unilateral promise to replace the sinful hearts of Israel and Judah with new hearts and to put His Spirit within them so that they delight, they delight in walking in His ways. And the new covenant extends to people from every nation. A new heart for Israel and Judah would become a catalyst in the hands of God to draw people from many nations to Himself. God already spoke of this earlier in Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He said, If you will return, O Israel, declares the Lord, then you should return to Me. And if you will put away your detested things from, from my presence and will not waver, and you will swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and righteousness, then the nations will bless themselves in Him and in Him they will glory. 
My brother James Alonji pointed out at our sermon discussion on Wednesday that God hints at that very intention to redeem people from the pagan nations right here in chapter 31 of Jeremiah. 31.7, he says, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chiefs of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save Your people, the remnant of Israel. And in verse 10, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare in the coastlands far off and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. Why would the chiefs of the pagan nations care that God was going to redeem His own people? Because that redemption would be based on the very same shed blood that would bring about the redemption of men from every tribe and tongue and people. God's intention to redeem people from among many nations and to use His redemption of Israel and Judah to accomplish that gracious purpose is a recurring theme throughout the whole Bible that I believe believe gets fulfilled in Revelation chapter 7. And I'm not going to take the time to explain that connection, but you're welcome to look that up and see what you think. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the ratification of the covenant, of the new covenant. This is actually very important stuff. In Jeremiah 31, verse 31, most of your translations say, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a covenant. I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. In verse 33, God says again, But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. But the actual verb in both of those verses is not make. It's cut. God says, I will cut a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He says, this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days. Now, why does He use that language? Ancient Near Eastern covenants were formalized or put into effect through a ratification ceremony. Sort of like the signing of a treaty these days. But there was a very vivid object lesson that was typically involved in the covenant ratification ceremonies in in the days of the Old Testament. And that object lesson carried a lot more weight than merely signing a paper in front of a bunch of important people. The ratification of a covenant in the Old Testament typically involved slaying one or more animals and then cutting them in half and laying the the two parts of their bodies in separate rows with the space in between. And then those who were parties to the covenant, who had obligations under the covenant, would pass between the parts of the slain animal. Through that bloody object lesson, those who were obligating themselves to keep the requirements of the covenant were saying, in effect, may God do to us what we did to those animals if we violate this covenant. It's a pretty pretty, uh, compelling way to obligate oneself to an agreement. There's actually an example of this very kind of covenant ceremony just three chapters after this in Jeremiah 34. According to that chapter, in the days of King Zedekiah, the Judahites 
entered into a covenant with God in which they agreed to release every Hebrew slave so that that slave could go back to his own, his own family and his own property. That was already supposed to happen every seventh year according to the law of Moses. Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 15. But Israel and Judah had not observed that requirement for a very long time. Jeremiah 34, verse 8 says, King Zedekiah cut this covenant with the people for the release of all Hebrew slaves, but then the people violated it and they took their slaves back. And so listen, listen to what God says to them in chapter 34, verses 18 to 20. And I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant which they cut before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between its parts, the officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the court officers, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf, and I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life, and their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. When they swore by that covenant, they said, in effect, may God do to us what we did to that animal, and God did. It should be pretty obvious by this point why it became commonplace in Israel to speak of covenant ratification ceremonies as the cutting of the covenant. And I should also point out that when God ratified His covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, after Abraham believed God and God reckoned His faith as righteousness to him, God had Abraham bring a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a pigeon and cut them in two pieces and lay the halves of each animal in separate rows with a path in between. But instead of commanding Abraham to pass between the parts of the of the slain animals, God put Abraham to sleep. And Abraham, in his sleep, watched in a vision as a representation of the glory of God Himself passed between the parts of the animals. That's because God's covenant with Abraham, just like the new covenant, was a unilateral covenant. God was binding Himself to the obligations of the covenant. So when and how was the new covenant cut? Neither Jeremiah nor Ezekiel narrates for us a covenant-cutting ceremony for the new covenant. Why? Because it hadn't been cut yet when they wrote about it. In the New Testament, Luke chapter 22, Jesus tells us exactly when and exactly how the new covenant was cut. At the first Lord's Supper, on the day before His crucifixion, Jesus broke bread with His disciples as we do every Sunday. And when He had given thanks for the bread, He said to them, This is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And then in the same way, He took a cup of wine and He said, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. The new covenant in my blood. Jesus was arrested that same night and the following day His blood 
indeed was poured out for his disciples and for us at the cutting of the new covenant. On that day at the cross, the new covenant between God and men was ratified. It was secured. It was put into effect by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There was no animal slain and cut into pieces as a picture of the outcome for one who violated the covenant because this covenant was not going to be violated. This covenant was unbreakable. There was only the actual death of the person in order to fully and perfectly establish the covenant in His blood. There was only one person who bound himself to the obligations of that covenant and that person was Jesus because He's the one who makes all of it happen. Isaiah said in Isaiah 53.8 that the suffering servant of God was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of My people to whom the stroke was due. <laughs> That's how the new covenant was cut. The one and only thing that sealed and secured the fulfillment of every aspect of the new covenant in the blood of Christ was the blood of Christ. And so all of the glory and all of the credit and all of our gratitude goes to Him. And beloved, all of our confidence, all of our confidence that we who believe in Jesus have been made heirs of the new covenant of perfect peace with God, all of our confidence is in Him, not in us. The last thing I want to consider is this. If you're under the new covenant through faith alone in Christ alone, you already have a new heart. When men were party to a covenant with God, they broke the covenant. And God wasn't surprised. God expected it. <laughs> but this covenant does what the old covenant didn't do. What it could not do. The law written in the hearts of men doesn't merely command men to know God and walk in His ways. The law written in the hearts of men makes men know God and walk in His ways. The value of the old covenant was to drive us to the new. Galatians 3 has a lot to say about that. We'll look at that some hopefully next week. But before we leave this morning, I want to challenge you with this question. Do you think of yourself day by day as having a new heart and a new nature that is already set apart to God. There are many, many believers who live their days on this cursed earth as if the only thing that really changed when they came to faith in Jesus was their eternal destiny. The end point. They live as if the promise of a new heart and blessed relationship with God is something distant not real yet, something they're still waiting for. They spend their lives coping instead of overcoming. But God says that the new heart in every believer is already as real as real gets right now. In passage after passage in the New Testament, God says that we whom He has redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ have already been made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Is that the way you think of yourself? 
God does not say that the new heart of the redeemed saint produces sinless behavior this side of glory. While we have been freed from the penalty and the controlling power of sin, we have not yet been freed from the presence of sin. The temptation to sin surrounds us at every turn. Through the pervasive sinfulness of of the world in which we live, through the relentless work of Satan and his demons to tempt us in every way imaginable to sin against God and to sin against each other, and we are all still doing battle against the habit of sin which is the residue of our old nature the world, the flesh, and the devil. But beloved, it's critically important that we know and confess and count as true daily that God has already made us new. He has already changed us forever. We have been given a new nature that was recreated in the likeness of Christ in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That new nature now defines us. It tells us who we are. Since the moment that God made us His own through faith in Jesus Christ, it has, it has not been our nature or our identity that has been at odds with God. Do you ever think about that? It's been our behavior. And that's what God is working to change. To bring our behavior into conformity with our nature. To to cause us to put on the new man. Do you think of yourself as having a new heart? A new nature that belongs to Christ and is defined by Christ and delights in Christ? In Ephesians 4, Paul talks about the unbelieving Gentiles who, quote, walk in the futility of their mind. He says they have been darkened in their understanding and excluded from the life of God. They have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And then he says to his fellow believers, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self the old man which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Present tense. Beloved, if God says that's what's true of you, shouldn't you believe that that's what's true of you? Shouldn't putting on the new man be as normal and as expected a part of your day every day as breathing? If you wake up every morning in effect denying that you have a new nature in Christ, how well do you think you'll do at living out that new nature? If instead you wake up every day counting as true the promise of God that He has written His law in your heart, that He has made you both able and inclined by your very nature, to walk in His ways, you think that might have an impact on the way you think and speak and act each day. Many Christians go through their daily lives as if they're still waiting for God to make them able to live the Christian life. (laughs) But He already has. 
Oh, he's still sanctifying us. He's still teaching us. He's still conforming us to Christ in our behavior. But he's already made us like Christ in our nature. Created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The new covenant is already in effect. Everything necessary to put that covenant into effect in your heart was fully accomplished at the cross. The blood of Christ was His all-sufficient payment for your sin and it is the guarantee of your new identity and your new nature as one who has been brought into eternal union with the Lord Jesus Christ. The new covenant in the precious blood of Christ has made us, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession in order that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. For we, we once were not a people, but now we are the people of God. We once had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Dear Father, I thank You. We thank You for doing for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. We thank You for sending Your own beloved Son to pay in full the debt that we owe to You and to bind us to Himself in so perfect a union that we are now defined by Him, empowered by Him, made new in Him. Father, teach us to live daily as the new creation that we now are by Your amazing grace alone. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.